welcome to episode eight of Money Mountaineering with Peter Newerth, which features critical thinking experts Leland Faust and Richard Kahn Jr., founders of Agents for Critical Thinking. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, proud producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. Pete and I know you are going to love this episode, but before he starts his Q&A with these gentlemen, let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Leland Faust founded CSI Capital Management in 1978 and was Chief Investment Officer through 2011. The company managed more than $1.5 billion and has represented more than 100 NFL, NBA, and MLB All-Stars, as well as Grammy and Academy Award winners. For his work with professional athletes, he was named by the Sporting News to its annual list of the 100 most powerful people in the sports industry. Only one of two investment advisors ever were selected for that list. He is a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley and Harvard Law, and is the co-author of Personal Tax Planning for Professionals and Owners of Small Businesses. He has been a frequent contributor to NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, the list goes on. His current book is A Capitalist Lament, How Wall Street is Fleecing You and Ruining America. Oh, please, we cannot wait to hear more about that, Leland. Richard Kahn founded Eurasia Advisors in 2003 and has practiced international corporate law for nearly 20 years as an equity partner with the international law firm Latham & Watkins. He founded that firm's Moscow office in 1992 and served as a key advisor to the presidential administration of Russian President Boris Yeltsin and president of the Moscow-based Foreign Bar Association. A long-standing past member of the Board of Directors of the U.S.-Russia Business Council and of the International Crisis Group's International Board of Advisors, Richard regularly consults with the World Bank, members of Congress, and the administration regarding CIS-related issues. He co-chaired the U.S.-Russia Business Council and American Chamber of Commerce in Moscow, a joint initiative to facilitate Russian access to the WTO. Richard is also a masterful chess player and in 2010 ran for the deputy presidency of the World Chess Federation on an international ticket. He currently chairs the advisory committee of a nonprofit organization that has already taught more than 4 million public school kids in second and third grade how to play chess. So fantastic. His current book is The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. Oh, I'm so excited to hear about that too. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff here. <laughs> Take it away, Pete. Well, thanks a lot. And, um, you know, we, we do have something different today. We've got not just one guest, we've got two guests and not just, and we don't have an actuary or, or any kind of math or type of person. We've got two lawyers and that is quite a treat and um, two great lawyers. And Leland, I've known you for a while. And Richard, I, I guess I've known you about 20 minutes now. And um, really, really looking forward to hearing what both of you have to say, because you've both written interesting books that have slightly different angles on critical thinking and what it means. And maybe we'll just start with you, Leland, because I'm much more familiar with your book, which is a great book about all the ways that Wall Street and other investment type firms fool people into perhaps not thinking critically. So you, you want to tell me a little bit about the book and how it led you to where you are today? Well, sure. I think that my book does illustrate so many ways in which critical thinking is lacking 
But I actually, when I started the book and when I actually finished it, I wasn't thinking of it as so much as, as an expose on critical thinking, which is not billed as, but as an expose on Wall Street, where I had spent my essentially my entire career and was so unhappy with what I observed. I came into the industry thinking that uh, the good guys would win and uh, things like that, that I'd grown up with, that people don't get away with telling lies constantly. And I was surprised at first and then later learned to expect it, uh, that that wasn't how it worked. But I also, as the title tells you, I'm a capitalist. I, I believe in free enterprises, free markets. I think that's key to both wealth and freedom. So I'm saying that the system is so good, but that it's been too, it's been uh, hijacked by the Wall Street firms. And then when I look back on it in more recent years, as I've been more involved in focusing on critical thinking or lack thereof, a lot of the critical thinking problems show up in Wall Street. So it's, it, and the, the, those critical thinking problems are, are not just by the people on Wall Street, but it seems like they take advantage of a lack of critical thinking on the part of the customers as well, right? Well, that's right. I think absolutely they do. And I mean, maybe this would be a good time. And I think I can tie it back to the Wall Street, a lot of these, to kind of what Richard and I have developed is sort of our model you know, in just you know a few words, which is difficult for what's critical thinking, and then some you know really four other things which tend to be out there, which aren't critical thinking, but which have such a per pervasive view in our society and are on Wall Street too. So, I mean, critical thinking, and we're going to just do this briefly because you could go on forever as to what it is, but. We define for our working purposes is the objective analysis and evaluation of information, the ability to understand a logical connection of facts, past experiences, and ideas, and then to make rational judgments and decisions based on that understanding. So it's an intellectual process, obviously. But then there's wishful thinking, and that's thoughts based on what's pleasing to imagine or hoped for results rather than considering evidence or rationality or reality. So again, if I want to apply that to Wall Street quickly, it's that you know your your stock will go will go up no matter what, or that you know your advisor is the best advisor, and certainly that may not be the fact. Then there's magical thinking, which is the belief that your own thoughts can influence the external world and thus ascribing a causal connection to your thoughts on what happens in the real world and events. So it would be the idea, and Richard's going to talk a lot more about this because in his particular area that he's written about recently, uh, in the religious area, that's so important. But then, you know, if you, if you pray for rain, it's going to rain. If you think hard that your stock is going to go up, it's going to go up sort of magical thinking. Muddled thinking uh, is a confused and illogical approach to processing information or ideas without the benefit of reality or rationality. And this gets into mathematical uh, irrationality too. So, uh, you know, this is understanding that, um, you know, in a non-Wall Street 
that if case that we don't get all excited if somebody announces, well, the probability of your getting cancer just went up 50% when it went from one in a million to one in 500,000. And on Wall Street, it's the idea that you, know, you can't have unlimited growth in a company forever, or pretty soon it becomes bigger than the whole market. And I've seen fancy firms put out those kind of numbers. And then the last one is groupthink, which is as conformist with everybody jumping on board. And boy, is Wall Street guilty of that, that one person puts out an idea or one firm comes up with some kind of crazy new product and they all jump on. So I think that the the lack of critical thinking is so important in the Wall Street area too. Right. Well, and, and that's a that's a great kind of panoply of all the kind of non the, the ways that people don't think critically. And one of them that just caught my my ear was this magical thinking because Richard, you you wrote a book about um, raising kids and and I guess raising them to to think critically or think to learn how to think. And um, boy, you know, most kids believe in magic and um, maybe that's okay and maybe not. But tell us a little bit about your book and how you would think kids should learn better to think. Sure, Pete. Uh, The Earthbound Parent is designed to promote critical thinking higher ethical standards and more peaceful relations among people. So the basic theme of the book is that passing along ancient mythologies, beliefs and deities and such is not necessary in order to inculcate, for example, ethics into our society and into our children. So uh, while the philosophy and concepts in the book uh, are certainly Uh, a value far beyond mere parenting. Uh, The book focuses on parenting because that tends to be when when we as adults give a lot of thought to the question of, well, how are we going to raise children? Do we want them to embrace ancient traditions because our parents and grandparents did that? Or do we want to go in a slightly different direction, which is a bit more uh, humble in the sense of looking at ourselves uh, as, you know, essentially just another life form on the planet, we all ought to get along and we don't necessarily want to have the arrogance of supernatural constructs uh, as our foundation for our belief systems. So the book does not incidentally discourage parents from uh, allowing their children to have imaginary you know, lives and fantasy, etc. But it, it does encourage parents to help the children recognize the difference between that and reality. Uh, And so, for example, uh, in the context of critical thinking, uh, one major theme of the book is, uh, for example, if your child uh, is having trouble falling asleep at night, as my five-year-old did at one point, and says to you, Dad, I can't sleep because I'm afraid of dying. You know, I'm, I'm worried about what happens when I die. Well, that's a moment when a parent, of course, wants to make the child feel better. And there's a bifurcation there, a a fork in the road. You can, of course, make that child feel great by just saying, don't worry, sweetie, you're sleeping under the magic blanket. Everything will be okay." 
there'd be no great harm in that. Or you can talk about there's, you know, being some old man up in the sky watching you. Uh, but if you wish, you can go in a different direction and say what I said, which is 12 words, which take care of the, the, the desire, if you will, to make a child feel more secure and safe without injecting a fantasy that uh, many parents try to perpetuate for a lifetime. This concept of a magical place where you're protected in the universe. Those 12 words have worked for virtually everybody I've ever spoken them to. So let's see if it works for you, Pete, and okay. you, Leland. It will be just the way it was before you were born. <laughs> my uh, my five-year-old heard that. She thought about it for a few moments. She went to sleep. She's now 13 and has not raised it again. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah. So, uh, look, there is a place for fun and magical thinking in parenting no, and for children, no question. But you don't want to confuse that by having children think that some fantasies are reality. And I would put in that category uh, sort of ancient belief systems, mysticism of deities, mm -hmm. which served their purpose before we had more developed science, medicine, before we had astronomy to show that actually, you know, there are not gods floating around in the clouds. Uh, and these things just over time become unnecessary. We don't need them as a foundation for societal norms. We have rule of law now throughout most of, most of the world. So we, we have ways of creating ethical societies without having the, what I'll call religious authoritarianism where uh, in our societies, where we give these uh, strong powers to people who purportedly speak for deities. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, I'm basically pointing out that if you're a parent, you have a choice. And the book lays out how you can sort of think through those choices, interact with a society that still has many religious components without having your children have to suspend their critical thinking skills in the most important area, I would argue, of life, which is our own place in the universe. And well, I think it's good for kids to be told, yeah, you're allowed to question that, think about that. And it's not a matter where you should close your mind and just exercise what people call faith. What I love about that is what you said to your child, which is to help them feel safe. Because I think, you know, being afraid and being, you know, not feeling anxious is one of the things that keeps people from, from thinking critically. And I also re remember, at least in the little bit I, I listened to of your book, you also think TV is not such a great thing. And that kind of gets in the way of, of kids' ability to learn to think. And I guess I, I would kind of throw it out to both of you guys is what are the sorts of things in today's world that get in the way of people's ability to think critically? Leland, do you want to go first? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I think if, certainly if you bring up the question of uh, television and, and media, uh, you can certainly have the problem that in, in you know, our society that celebrity and entertainment seems to trump almost anything. And uh, the pun is almost intended in a sense that that's how we got our president uh, of, you know, a few years ago, that he was a television star and people then started voting for him because they thought they knew him and the celebrity culture. And I think that that 
as a real you know, effect on things. And it certainly has had an effect in Wall Street uh, with the celebrity culture there that people don't understand what's not really knowable. And, you know, it's only after the fact that you can determine who a great uh, investor is. You can't figure it out while it's going on. And no one will you know, will accept that fact. Everybody thinks that they can identify the you know the great uh, investor, or that if he's done something right uh, once, he's necessarily going to you know, going to do it again. And I mean, a wonderful example of this was uh, put in a in a book by uh, Nassim Taleb, and he was suggesting that you know, uh, luck plays so much importance in, in this. And he gave a wonderful example. When I read it, I slammed my hand on the table and said, damn, why didn't I think of that? He said, well, he said two things. Look, if, if you got 50,000 people trying to do something and there's a one in 10,000 chance of being right, on average, about five are going to get it. So that doesn't mean that they're brilliant uh, predictors. It just means they're, they're the one in 10,000 who got it right. But the real example, which I loved, was his suggestion for a coin flipping contest in Yankee Stadium. He said, okay, everybody stand up. So 50,000 people are standing up. He said, now we're going to flip a coin. If you think it's going to be a head, raise your hand. If you don't, keep it down. They flip the coin. They announce it. So about 25,000 people sit down and they do it again. 12,000 people sit down. Well, for 50,000 people, you need about 14 calls in a row to, to actually get one winner statistically. Now, is your suggestion, this is a really smart predictor of coin flips? If you ask that guy, what's your secret? I'm sure he'd have a real good explanation of how he got those 14 heads in a row. Right. So, or, exactly. Or called it right 14 times. Yeah. Right. So, but there's so much of that on, on Wall Street. So if you listen to a Jim Cramer and you say, gee, this guy pretends he knows everything. Well, just think about how difficult it would be, if not impossible, to know about 30 different stocks for a month. That'd be 900 stocks, right? I mean, you can't possibly, you can't possibly know that. And so, you know, we get in, we get into that, or we get into somebody who was, you know, morning, literally Morningstar's mutual fund manager of the decade you know, a couple of decades ago. And then for the next six years, he kept managing his fund. And for the last five years of his career, he had a really good year, the last, pardon me, a really good month, the last month of that uh, career, so that his uh, fund for the last five years, this is the manager of the decade, rallied from being uh, 859th to being 858th in his category. So right. it tells us that he had some kind of a idea that worked for a while and then didn't, or that he was lucky for a while and that he didn't, but he was promoted. And I talk about this in my book as one of the three huge problems on Wall Street, which is this unrelenting hucksterism and pretending of what's going on rather than looking at the logic behind it and seeing what makes sense. People prefer hearing somebody say, I know this is going to happen. And therefore, follow me rather than, well, this is complicated and they're, they're, ba they're balancing things we need to do. And there's a probability of this or a probability of that. 
people are very unsecure with that. And therefore, they're not thinking critically that it makes more sense to evaluate the entire possibilities and then try to make a rational decision rather than going with the person who says, I know. And I mean, at one point, Kramer was asked for his one favorite stock and he picked it. And over the next two years, it went down 95%. So, <laughs> I mean, and this is just what happened. And by the way, I'm not picking on him there. I can cite you lots of other people on Wall Street who do have done the same thing. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on. There's the hucksterism, uh, which is a real part of, you know, of what I wrote about. Right. So back to you, Richard, when you're raising kids, I mean, I think you're actually also talking a little bit about independent thinking, which I guess is related to critical thinking. And when you're raising kids, they they listen to their parents and they do what their parents do. So so and they're looking for that. And so, Richard, how do you how do you teach a kid to think independently as well as critically? I would say this: it's it's become harder over the uh, last couple of generations. I raised two litters of children, and with the <laughs> advent of social media, it's become even more challenging for parents to try to figure out as you would say, independently, how to go about doing this. And in The Earthbound Parent, I lay out as many ideas as I can give people. Some of them do relate to secular parenting, but some are equally appropriate for religious parenting if that's what someone chooses to do. Number one, don't go along with societal norms. So if, for example, you don't think it's a good idea to let your child, uh, let's say someone came up to you and said, hey, can I talk to your child for one second you know, with you present? You might say, sure. What if they said, let me just take him or her over here for 30 minutes. I just want to talk to him or her alone, you know, to your four-year-old. You would say no to that. I'm quite confident. Yet most parents will turn on a TV set and allow whatever commercials, whatever programming comes on and allow that to be shown to their children at all ages. So the first thing I'd say to parents is we have a lot more thought to that. What we did is we controlled their access to all sorts of different media, including movies and TV. So, you know, I didn't really have a TV in the home for many, many, many years. We had videos through our computers and either I or my wife would put on specific things that we wanted the kids to see. But rather the way we thought of it is we wanted our children to be active in the world and active with their minds. So from very early ages, you know, we were singing to them, doing musical instruments. Of course, I taught my kids chess as well and tennis and different sports. My daughter actually became a prima ballerina. She won a world championship in that between ages of 12 and 14. Uh, my other daughter is a very strong tennis player and chess player. They've got all sorts of hobbies. They're, um, they speak, let's see, both of them speak fluent Russian and English and also fluent Mandarin and quite good at French and Spanish. It's not hard. What it takes is a commitment by the parents to live their lives that way. So, and this, this may scare people, but I don't really do TV. So it doesn't cross my mind to spend the evening sitting around watching television with the kids. That would never be the center you know, point of our lives. So in part, critical thinking comes from sharing these parenting experiences with your child. Believe me, if you put your child on your knee at age two, three, four, and start teaching them games, 
they'll love it. And if you start teaching them how to play piano or other, other instruments, they will love it. Mine went through phases of learning the harp and the violin and all sorts of fun instruments. There's so much to do in life without getting into this passive world of watching, you know, of turning things on or manipulating devices. We only now, Pete, in the last year or so, have given limited access to our teenage daughters uh, to phones. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure some out there would say, well, that's cruel. Well, no, we want them to be social. We really do. But we want them to interact on a human level at school with, with kids. And we want their time to be very limited in terms of being able to be on all these apps. So I think it comes from the, the role model that we set as parents mm -hmm. and how we interact with the world. The children will follow that. They'll view that as normal. But, you know, if instead you're a parent that just turns on the TV when you come home and pops a beer, well, you have to expect that's what your children are going to see and emulate. And that's your choice. You know, you get to raise them as you wish. You know, you, you, you mentioned games. So, I, I, of course, I have to ask you this. You're not only a chess player, you're, a, you're a, an extraordinary chess player and you know some extraordinary chess players. Did you find that teaching your kids chess helped them in their critical thinking? And what role does game play and strategic thinking play? Because strategic thinking is another kind of thinking. Yeah, well, look, I have been very fortunate. I've, I've gotten, I ran to be deputy president of the World Chess Federation with Karpov. And yes, I've done a lot with Magnus Carlsen through the years. And as we were talking about beforehand with Bernstein, you know, all sorts of different players. But uh, uh, it's been a real joy to see to see my children and other children, because, as you know, I do promote chess for children in various ways, uh, see the benefits they get from it. I would say the, that the obvious stuff is maybe not the part that I think is the most valuable. It, it is certainly useful to for a child to learn how to calculate, you know, how to think in terms of, you know, controlling their mind to look one or two moves or maybe three moves into the future. And that level of concentration is hard. It's hard for adults. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great to be, to develop some memory, to develop some competitive spirit, uh, the camaraderie of playing against other children in chess. But there are things that are less obvious that to me are really valuable in game, in game playing, particularly chess. Uh, I'll use that as the example. There's nothing like losing in chess to teach all of us modesty and humility. We as humans tend to have this construct, and it's tied in a part with this religious background, that somehow we're really smart, really special, all this stuff. When you play chess, you realize how stupid you are. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. And, and that's a great gift. It really is. You just realize, gosh, if I'm if I make a good move every once in a while, it's because I've really had to concentrate, put other things out of my mind, train my mind. And it's just a lot of fun to see all of our own weaknesses. And with AI now having become super strong and seeing that applied to chess. Uh, it's it's even more humbling, you know. We right. chess players can see that we're we're basically slugs compared to the, the computational ability of computers. Uh, so with children, it it also gives them a sense of responsibility and accountability because they make good moves, bad moves, they win, they lose. It gives them a, a a sense of being able to to have some control over their own worlds as well. So mm -hmm. there there are all sorts of elements to this and. 
chess is now sweeping the planet, and I'm delighted to see that. The more we have practice uh, in, in, in taking joy and thinking, I think the better off we are. The more camaraderie we develop by having chess as sort of a common language, the better. And the more we recognize our, our own inabilities, you know, and our own weaknesses, I, I think that also is very positive because we've got a lot of problems to solve together. And we, we need to realize they're not going to be solved by magic wands or magical thinking. It's going to be critical thinking as best we can do it. Right. Just shifting slightly, on a previous podcast, I had Annie Duke, who is a, a poker player, where we were talking is about making decisions where the future is uncertain. And this, this comes out when you're trying to uh, figure out when to retire, do you have enough money to retire, how much money should you spend to retire, all kinds of financial decisions that have an uncertain future. And her point was that poker was the great model and particularly because we all have biases. So I wanted to ask both of you guys, and maybe we can go back to you, Leland, how do you overcome the biases that one has when you're making financial decisions? And, and, and you know, both of you guys. To start with, I'm going to say something very obvious, which is it's really hard to overcome what, you know, whatever, you know, whatever biases you have, whatever mindset you have. I mean, I think, for instance, there are a lot of, you know, these success stories of venture, adventure, you know, investments or the founders of them. And I think that so many of those have succeeded because they had a good idea. Obviously, if they succeeded, something was right. But they also had essentially a tunnel vision. They could only see that it was going to be great. And they couldn't see, well, there could be a problem to the left of something happening wrong, or there could be a problem from this side. And so they weren't constrained by having to deal with the realities which are out there. And there are other people who would have had the same idea, but would have just been petrified to go ahead and get, oh, my God, I could lose here because of this, or I could lose here because of this, or how can I take on this company? So I think there's, there's a lot of that where sometimes analysis, you know, gets in your way, unfortunately, for this purpose. But I also think that, and I don't know if Annie Duke was comparing investing to poker, because that's another theme of my book, that Wall Street, mainstream Wall Street has turned investing into gambling. And again, if you know, back to the kind of a numeracy, which is a sort of a Ad, you know, adjunct or part of critical thinking is you understand how things work and gambling on Wall Street. Anybody, who, at least I think, who thinks it through wouldn't do it as opposed to investing on Wall Street. I'm going to give you the difference what I think in a, in a second. But the idea of investing is to put your money into a venture which you think has the potential to increase in value because what it does will become more efficient and bigger or both. So that the company can grow and make more money or can become more efficient and make more money or even best, both. And, and if you do that, when you invest, everybody in the transactions can be quite happy. So you invest in a company, you give the company your money, it gives you the stock. So the company's gotten what it wants, the money to work with, you've gotten the stock. 
if your stock does go up in value, then both sides in this transaction have profited. The company got your money, it put it to work, you were able to sell it later at a higher price because they put it to work productively. Everybody wins, as opposed to gambling. And gambling is either a zero-sum game or a negative-sum game. So when you're gambling on Wall Street, you're investing in, let's say, an option. Well, I make whatever, if I'm right, the other guy loses exactly the same amount. So there's no way that both of us in that transaction can be happy. And of course, on Wall Street, if anybody's paying any attention, it's even worse because there are commissions. And I don't care if anybody says it's commission free or free to you, head for the exits, because that's an obvious lie. How can it be free? You know, you're paying for it. Now, yes, there are minor exceptions with someone saying we won't charge you, you know, maybe for a stock transaction because we're going to make our money by just having your account. Although certainly that's up and it's another example of the nonsense on Wall Street. Robinhood saying, well, your transactions are free, but of course they were getting paid for deal flow. And it turned out in many cases, you'd have been better off going to a discount broker and paying a small commission than getting their free trade and their worse uh, execution. So, but this idea of gambling is so crucial to why Wall Street is ruining us and fleecing us because people think they're investing where everybody can make profit. And in fact, they're gambling when with cost, the, all the investors in the aggregate have to lose. Right. But isn't, I mean, many of these decisions, I mean, for example, the decision to retire or the decision as to how much of your, of your portfolio to spend, you're really playing against yourself. And then you're dealing with your own internal biases, your your optimistic, your optimism bias, your status quo bias, and and um, I don't know, Richard. What I mean, how would you recommend one deal with the the internal biases that we all have? Yeah. First, let me let me note the I wrote on the Earthbound Parent. I've, I've been fortunate to have befriended arguably the best investor in history who from whom I learned to embrace uncertainty. I, I think uncertainty is reality. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we all have to sort of fight against our, our inclination to sort of uh, feel like we're in control, feel that we can predict the future, uh, even though at some rational level, we know we can't. Uh, and so I think where bias comes in is in, uh, in trying to sort of, from a human perspective, to adjust to, to that uncomfortable reality. We, we have to make decisions. We're not able to calculate particularly well. And so we utilize our biases. I'll, uh, I'll use another chess example to illustrate it because I think it actually works in this context. A few years back, I, I had this idea and I ran it by this, uh, at, the, at the time, someone I was having lunch with, Magnus Carlsen, the top chess player probably in history. And what I said to him was, uh, that I'm I'm now starting to think of strategy as a lazy man's tactics. Hmm. And what that means in the chess context, tactics is the ability to calculate, right? To look move by move. Strategy tends to be what we think of as chess players are sort of the conceptual framework. It's the idea that certain you know, moves generally are good. And what 
what I really was driving at, and by the way, he did actually th think about it and agree. Uh, we as humans are not able to calculate particularly well, you know, and as I said, if you play chess, you'll, you'll see that very quickly. Uh, but what we are very good at is coming up with a sort of rules, strategic concepts, which I'll refer to now in your terminology as biases. And these sort of get us by, you know, in the chess context, you know, we put rooks on open files, we put bishops where they have scope, because we cannot, as would computers, calculate out 50 moves and see whether in this particular instance that rule makes sense. Uh, so I guess I would say that biases or and these sort of strategic concepts are sort of what keep us tethered to, you know, to our reality and make us feel comfortable and, and help us to make decisions. But I think it's very healthy to recognize that that's all we're doing. And to keep, again, that sense of humility in their, our decision making. Uh, yeah, someone like you, Pete, has a much better sense of, you know, how to game out the actuarial sort of routes and how to make investment decisions. Leland's got his great professional background in it. But still, none of us can predict the future, right? And so we try to, uh, you know, basically place bets in different areas that take into account our own fallibility. Uh, so that's how I think about it. I, I think biases is sort of our our natural defense mechanism that makes us feel better about our inability to figure things out. Well, I I, I really agree with you. And in fact, I've, I've always said a lot of these people talk about biases and errors, and really they're just features of our brain. But we're just about out of time. And I, I want to end by asking both of you to tell me a little bit more about the agents for critical thinking and what is this organization? What are you? What are you, what? What are your goals? And where's where is it? Where are you going with it? Do you want me to go first on this one, Leland? Do you want to? Yeah, go? why don't you go first on that one? Go ahead. Yeah, basically, this just represents an effort that Leland and I have teamed up on to try to promote critical thinking in children. And what I would say to folks is there are many ways to do that. You can support scientific endeavors. I give all the money uh, from my book, for example, to the Dawkins Foundation, you know, what, what Richard Dawkins and his team does. There are chess organizations, scientific organizations. We've allocated some of our capital to educating children to be critical thinking, thinkers. And that's basically what it is. It's just a team effort that Leland and I uh, have together. Uh, but really, our books are are primarily the mechanisms of trying to convey our thinking in that regard. Leland, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I don't think I, I have very little to add to that because I think that you know, expresses it quite well. I mean, I think that we also would like to, to see a, a, an emphasis on numerical literacy more because that spills into so many places, whether it's your personal life or your uh, public policy decisions and how you vote, you know, what you do about medical treatments. It's just everywhere. And it's just lacking so much in terms of people understanding that. So it's another area of critical thinking we'd like to get kids more involved in. Right. Well, this has been fantastic. And I, I really want to thank both of you guys tremendously. And and Leland's, your book is A Capitalist Lament and, and uh, Richards is the earthbound, the earthbound parent and, uh, 
The organization is the Agents for Critical Thinking, and I really, really appreciate you guys uh, spending the time, and it's been a wonderful pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you all. What a fascinating conversation, something that takes it to a new level and what a lot of parents really want to hear. So Peter and I look forward to promoting this so that more people can know what you're up to. So thank you, Leland. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Peter Newworth. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show. Check out Money Mountaineering and we will talk with you soon. Take good care and be smart about your critical thinking. 